Howdy. I'd like to just take a second to thank all my wonderful patrons and listeners for continuing with me as I become a better podcaster and learn more about sound and develop this podcast. And it's been completely different from what we did last season. So I'm very, very grateful for the listeners who continue as my content has changed to listen with us while we make it through this pandemic. If anyone is interested in supporting me, a good place to look is my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Rambler. There's an underscore between the and Rambler. That again is patreon.com slash the underscore Rambler. I do also post free content there. It's a very good place to keep up with me and find my other social media links. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Howdy, everybody. This is Rambler. It's my first day back after taking a little bit of a social media and a creation hiatus to just sort of I don't know, not burn myself out. While I was off, though, I was really, I was really lucky to get to do an interview with Voices of the Resurgence. Um, And we talked about Afro-Indigenous experiences, and I got interviewed for a change. So I am going to be posting that as our hiatus break episode, as well as adding details about Voices of the Resurgence, which is another really good Indigenous podcast. Trigger warning, these are pretty heavy conversations that we're having, and I'm having them about my own identity and about Afro-Indigenous identity with Kel, who is also another Black Native woman. So uh, I just gave you guys a break halfway through with some regular folk music and no messages, because I feel like there's enough in here. As always, thanks to my patrons, um, past, present, and future, Anybody who has been struggling through this time, I am absolutely not upset if you have to drop your Patreon subscription. I know that's not really popular for people who are trying to make money, but everybody's struggling right now. So I see that, and I really hope that all of my listeners, all of my patrons, and everybody out there is doing the best they can with what they have and is being as happy as they can because I'm out here and I'm rooting for you. So um, thanks for joining me for this episode, and definitely check out Voices of the Resurgence as well. <clears throat> Hi, um, how am I Um, uh, James Machiapi. Um, hello, my relatives. My name is James. I am a Lakota, and I am broadcasting to you from uh, Cheyenne and Ocheti Shawnee territory. And uh, today, I am joined by. I'm Ty. I use they them pronouns. I uh, am a Shakakwek person. Uh, is currently attending school on Silk territory. everyone. My name is Shalina, and I am from the United Nation of the Thames, and I'm currently in my home territory, shared with the Anishinaabe and many other nations. But I'm also studying, oh, I guess, through now, online, in the beautiful Silk Territory. And today, we have two special guests with us. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Uh, howdy, I'm Jordan Marika. I am a Black Cherokee freedman. I use she, they pronouns. Currently, I live on Miami land, and I live in the area that also has a lot of the amazing Adina Hopewell earth fixtures. I live about an hour north of the Serpent Mound, for those of you who are familiar with that. And I also have my own podcast called Rambler, so I'm super excited to be working with other native podcasters, because I just think it's a lot of fun. 
Alisa, everyone. My name is Kellen Slater. Um, I am Chata Muskogee and Seminole. Um, I'm currently hanging out in Delaware land um, in Lenape's territory. I guess I'm in kind of like an in-between space. Um, and I'm so happy to be here. I really enjoy talking to other Native people. Um, I use she, they pronouns as well. Yes, and um, just a little update. Um, Sarah will be taking a break from the podcast. Um, shout out to her. She has been part of the OG crew since the very beginning. Um, we will miss you. We wish you well on your journey. Um, but yeah, with all that all the way, uh, let's get into some news. Um, wait, so wait. how about that? Oh, oh. I think yeah. I forgot to mention that I'm also black. I'm so So for those of you who have been living under a rock, um, and it's also been a while since we last recorded because, of course, a lot of shit happens whenever we just don't record for a while. Um, yeah, fucking some whole-ass white supremacists just tried to fucking, were just, I don't know, tried to do a coup or some shit. It's just, it was fucking, it was a whole-ass white riot, like, <laughs> in fucking D.C. Um, so that's very um, distressing. And, um, also, like, we're two days away from, like, the beginning of, like, fucking just planned protests in every fucking, say, capital that's gonna be lasting between the 16th and the 20th, so there's, there's all that, um, totally not living in a decaying, falling, collapsing, um, U.S. empire, that's, that's very cool. Like, if, if you're, like, me, worried about some white supremacist armed fucking whatever you know you feel like you want to protect yourself well howdy do do i got some fucking advice for you um buy some body armor <laughs> well that's if you're like living in a very uh dense area of like people um if you're living in a rural area just kind of like buy it at your own discretion i guess but like yeah if you're if you're in an urban area i would suggest getting some body armor um preferably I would get uh, level three ceramic plates and a plate carrier. Um, yeah, so there's all that. Um, and then we got the South Dakota pandemic rates fucking skyrocketing through the goddamn roof. Um, <sighs> I... They couldn't cancel Sturgis, could they? They could just. I'm very frustrated because they just it's... let the bike runs keep going. It's such bullshit. You know, I've, every time I've been out hiking, all the fucking huge-ass, like, all the popular trails have just been filled to the fucking brim with people. Um, it, every time I go to the fucking, any sort of store, like, it just, it feels like the pandemic isn't real. Like, every time mm -hmm. I see just white people just walking downtown without any masks on, just, it doesn't feel like the pandemic is real. Like, I feel Wait. like I'm, it's a fucking fever dream for me. <laughs> There's One of the things I've been paying attention to. Craig just died. Ah, shit. God damn it, Craig. Craig! Craig! You guys don't get charged if you don't wear a mask? We're in Canada. 
No. It's now recording. It's like a two hundred dollar charge for DC. Uh, Colorado In- also implemented fines. Um, I, for more information on that, I am currently getting my PhD in Colorado. I'm just back home because I had to get surgery. Uh, but Colorado does not fuck around with that. Are we allowed to curse on Yeah. yeah. Okay. I curse all the time, so. <laughs> uh, it does not fuck around when it comes to wearing masks, which is nice. But then again, like the minute you step out of Denver or Fort Collins, um, you're gonna be, you're gonna be with hippies who think like tea tree oil is gonna protect them, or uh, you're gonna get like your rancher farming contingency saying like, oh, we don't need that shit. It's a violation of our freedom. And I'm like, for the love of God, put that piece of cloth over your fucking nose. I just I hate that this is even a thing. Um, and like. I guess a little bit of background information as to why I'm so incensed. I'm actually an environmental epidemiologist, and this has been my whole entire life since the pandemic started. It's just, like, getting people to be compliant um, in terms of taking proper protocols uh, to protect themselves and others. And it's just, like, a big empathy problem. Like, people are selfish. They want to live their lives the way they want to live it. And they don't think that something like this will ever happen to them until it does. They think it's something that poor people experience or poorer people experience. It's something that, you know, people of color experience. It can't possibly happen to them because they go to church, they're nice to their neighbors, and they carry a gun. It is, I'm incensed all the time. Yeah, it's just, (laughs) everything about living in the U.S. is just shitty. (laughs) garbage this place is trash yeah even though here we had our city hall uh uh, vandalized i think like three times with anti-mask like just the sayings and like hey we're gonna meet here on this day and then the police were just there waiting for them (laughs) jay what were you gonna say um the mall and you know what sucks is that like in Kelowna. Um, since I've been there, I've gone to, like, a lot of environmental protests. I've gone to a lot of protests for missing and murdered women, for the pipelines. They're just a bunch of different movements. And it's always just kind of, like, a handful of people who are, like, the same like, handful of people every time. And then I looked at the anti-masker protest that happened downtown and that went through the mall. I was like, why don't y'all get more folk out? <laughs> Yeah. The middle of a pandemic and we offer treats and like a meal at the end of our stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what? No pen like no risk of death plus police brutality. It's like some whole ass yeah. back thinking on that. <laughs> yeah. We had free sex. <laughs> People would just rather die than like have fucking be safe and have free oh, snacks. No, no, like what? No, 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 Jane. No, 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 that's their right. That's their right to die. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, forgive me. Forgive me, Kel. I apologize. Wilding over there for no reason. <laughs> who, who asked you to come in here with some common sense? Nobody. Nobody asked. That. I woke up and chose violence today. Um. <laughs> like the thing is, if it only affected them, I'd be like, take it off. 
Want some blankets? Land back! Guys, 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 hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. If we just send all the white supremacists in a scavenger hunt in Europe, we could just take the land back while they're gone. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. You might be in I know, I, you're <laughs> <laughs> That's the It's a good old-fashioned back-to-Europe-airline campaign. But, alright, so... That's all the thing. Um, Deb Holland been confirmed for interior for Joe Biden's administration. Um, nasty. Uh, <laughs> um. It's bad news? Why is it bad news? It's bad news because she hates uh, black people. <laughs> yeah. She like, is very anti-black native people and black freedmen and everybody is just happy because it's a native lady and I'm like, but mm -hmm. what if they were a good person too? Like why... Yeah. We can be excited in some regards in that, okay, they were thoughtful, but they chose the wrong one. Like, she doesn't care that I exist. She doesn't think I deserve any sort of right to my tribal affiliation. She's just like, I'm Native, and that's enough. And, like, I hate to say it, but that's definitely not enough unless you're attempting to represent everyone. Well, uh, also, it just helps oh, assimilate our people to whiteness quicker. That, you know, like, it really is, like, endorses white supremacy. They they would rather see our language and traditions leave than just acknowledge like the brown folk in their family, the black folk in their family who can oh. like carry on traditions. I again I I don't understand that type of thinking, but it's so harmful to communities when we we, we deny kinship. And she's all about it. So how how in the world can I possibly be excited about it? Right. I had no yeah. idea this stuff was going on. Honestly, I'm not really in tune with, like, the American, like, politics now. Because, one, I think it's all going to end in a week. So that's that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> like, watching from the outside, I'm like, okay. <laughs> But I didn't know, like, all of that stuff about her at all. Yeah. Yeah, because nobody's going to talk about it openly. It, because there's, like, this weird thing that has happened. And I think that because of pan-Indianism, people don't really think about how colonization happened in phases in this country. So people like us who are from southeastern nations, we were dealing with the onslaught of English mm -hmm. colonialism and the establishment of the United States, like, 200 yeah. years before the Indian Wars. And Custer didn't start, it, like, Custer wasn't on the plains until after the Civil War. Whereas my people were marched to, uh, on the Trail of Tears to mm -hmm. Oklahoma as a result of the Civil War. And I think that it's not yeah. that anybody has it better or worse, but that is a difference. And when you conglomerate all of our history into one lump, you really miss the nuances of how colonialism happens in phases. Right. And we um, like the, um experience too because i'm Haudenosaunee, right so i'm on like same like eastern woodland so just a little bit yeah. more north near the lakes uh, i mm -hmm. think it's it's definitely um it's definitely like hard explaining to people like why we've adopted certain like practices that could be like being european or even like inherited like features and i'm like dude 
those European people have been here for like four hundred, like two, two, three hundred years. That's steadily the... coming, like yeah, right. Like as Jay was saying, um, from I'm also obviously a Southeast native. Um, my people have been ravaged by the English, the Spanish, and the French for a long mm-hmm. time since the minute they stepped foot here. So, like, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, James, we've had conversations when we're talking about just the difference in how colonialism has affected our families. You know, uh, racial mixing um, in the Southeast was going on for a long time before, you know, they started hitting, you know, they went beyond the Louisiana Purchase. Um, and so those traditions, some some are a little bit more African-centric, some are definitely more Eurocentric, but it's a lot more mixed because it was needed for survival rather than, you know, uh, our, our fight was partially preservation, but it wasn't all preservation. Does that make sense? Am I rambling? Yeah. yeah. No, well, no, also to piggyback, <laughs> to piggyback on that a lot, um, like uh, the Chattalusa and the Seminole people are right below my people, and my people were predominantly okay. Appalachian, and so because we were in the mountains until after the Civil War, the U.S. government didn't really try to intervene in the haulers, and that's why the Hatfield-McCoy thing happened for like a hundred years before anybody took care of it. But what a lot of other people don't know is that Mildred Loving, the woman who, you know, Loving versus Virginia, the entire court case that made interracial mm-hmm. marriage legal, legal, she was a black Cherokee woman. So, and she was like actually confused by why she wasn't being granted a marriage license because in her community, triracial, biracial, and intermixed people have existed for so long that it was just like outside of their cultural lexicon for that to be an issue. And that's how a lot of communities on the East Coast and in the South were. And that's not to say that we didn't have racial issues, but that is to say that we have a lot of maroon and megalon and uh, Creole societies and that people don't recognize those as indigenous cultures because of our internalized anti-blackness. But if you look at a lot of the smaller tribes of New England, like the Wampanoag, those are a lot of black native people. Like, a lot of Pamucky people are black native people and have been for over like 300 years. A lot of Pamucky people, black native. Yeah. Right. There are some tribes now in those areas that are predominantly Afro-Indigenous, and that's, I think, why they get a lot less attention than um, people who we consider more of Indian country, which is like uh, tribes like the Lakota and Navajo people because we have like this enchanted idea of what it looks like to be native. And that doesn't really include Afro-Indigenous cultures. Yeah, when I think of, like, Native movies, it's always you get your, like, Plains Natives, your Plateau Natives. Like, that's what being Native looks like from the outside. And I think I think the Black Native story gets erased a whole lot. Like, my family is obviously, I'm the descendant of slaves. My family, the reason why I'm so I'm intermixed with like five different tribes is because my family came from between Florida and North Carolina. And I track, we've tracked every tribal affiliation and every slave movement that we were allowed to track since then. And everything is intermingled. You have, again, you have your Geechee Gullah meets your Seminole, meets your Low Country Yamasee, meets your. 
high country Sigali. Like it, it moves so much, and it's just this blender of cultures just attempting to survive. Whereas, like, I I don't want to call this a luxury, but something that plains and plateau natives have that you know a lot of southeastern natives don't have is a firmer understanding of where their traditions come from because we had so much we had so much time there was a time span where we were just struggling to remain as a people and we had to adopt other tribes in in order to maintain and protect ourselves does that make sense a little bit i just have like a quick comment to say though i think it's important that like when we're having these conversations that not that i'm saying you guys are doing them but like there tends to be like a minimization of the west coast experience oh, and like being no, 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 amongst no, no. Yeah. Steel people, being amongst the steel people for like um for a couple years now like and reading about like their historical experience so they didn't have people colonizing they didn't have um like steady col- like colonization until 1807 Mm-hmm. But the impact that had on them as a people, like it, it did really like. Oh, absolutely! I don't within mean like twenty that years it... minimizing the impact because the thing is, like, the shit's traumatic. The shit ruined families. Everything, everything about you know European invasion of the continent has ravaged culture. I don't want you to think that I don't acknowledge. No, no, no. I, yeah. I'm not oh, trying just, to say you guys like that at all, though. <laughs> yeah. I, it just, yeah they, I, just, I think that that's the problem with these conversations is that um, because the histories of our tribes and of colonization is actually so distinctly different, we spend a lot of time, like, trying to compare notes. And it's not something that right. I think that anybody here is doing right now. But it is something that I see happen intertribally fairly often. And I think that it's one of the more disappointing things that I see is that people are so willing to erase the realities of other tribes because they're uncomfortable with other people's histories as they are with their own and I think that's internalized colonization is that these conversations are really difficult to have because things can be different and acknowledged mm-hmm. uh, but that that's does well put yeah, yeah it requires having some reflectiveness on yourself because I do think that is important that we take a look at the fact that um, stereotypical erasure of our people is due to hyper exposure of Plains people and that doesn't benefit any of us but that is still no. a true fact yeah I think uh, going off that hyper uh, exposure uh, I think that it also extends to just being black as well um, yep. hyper exposure literally does no one any favors yet like the first thing that when we talk about these like inter we have these like interracial conversations like the first thing that tends to happen especially on the festival that is twitter is that mm-hmm. um the first thing people always attack is like well you have representation or people know what's going on with your community and i'm like no uh y'all see what certain beings the powers that be want you to see and you don't really understand that this culture isn't a monolith you know being a plains native isn't a monolith being a plateau native isn't a monolith being a south eastern native is not a monolithic experience um mm-hmm. and being black is not a monolithic experience and i think 
what tends to happen is that we conflate hyperexposure with like actual cultural understanding. And then I think or that's privilege, where, even. yeah, and that's where a disconnect is because honestly, this my skin being this color, I love being black, but the exposure and what I'm exposed to is not a privilege. Yeah, and I definitely very much empathize with that. And I think that I get it differently because obviously y'all have seen pictures of me. I look like a regular, regular mixed person. Um, Not to say that that means anything, but there are high yellow people like me at every black person's table. We know what it is, right? right? That's special. Exactly. Um, But that, that means that I experience blackness in a different way with colorist benefits, but that doesn't mean that I don't experience anti-blackness. And And so that's what I try to explain to people is that you can acknowledge your privileges and your exposure and the reality of them is still colonial manipulation. But having an understanding of that is important. So when we talk about who is hyper-exposed, like I made an entire TikTok about Native people being mad about Black people having hyper-exposure. And I was like, well, if you really want us to pass you this ball, it's full of scorpions and we didn't want it anyways. Yeah, please take it. Dear God. Right. Or rather, don't take it. Uh, we're telling you it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, I also feel like it's super, like, important. Like, I see a lot on TikTok, like, um, I see both, like, a lot of demonization of indigenous community, romanticization, but even, like, a lot of, like, identity policing of the community. And it's so, like, difficult, like, watching and seeing that like happen in like a platform that's not really like i'm like you're not going to get a historical perspective in a one minute video on tiktok <laughs> right we have like you can you can that can be like an entrance and whole whole indigenous scholars who still don't understand everything that's going on and then like we try to summarize it in 60 seconds and like jay did a great job tackling the topic they tackled but like there's so much that you can't include in 60 seconds for real and people oftentimes ask me questions that are completely out of my wheelhouse too and i'm not one of those people who's reconnecting who's going to lie about my knowledge base i'm going to come at you with the information that i have but also if you ain't paying for my phd why the hell are you expecting a dissertation like Ooh, people facts. oftentimes no matter <laughs> like just because i'm a black woman does not make me your mule light-skinned as fuck yes. at, or not you can leave me the hell alone on that like no i don't owe you book recommendations here, it's annoying as hell like <laughs> that's why i took a break it's just like so much emotional labor which is why i try to stay away from talking about certain things on my twitter now um because I'm like, I don't have the capacity. I don't have the grace. You know what I'm saying? Um, if I don't know you, I don't really owe you an explanation as to why I feel the way I feel about whatever you tweeted. Um, and so I usually, if my office hours, and I put that in quotes, are open, like that's when I invite people to ask me genuine questions. But most of the time, they are, my, my door is closed. Like I'm not here to teach you. You know, I, I'm not going to teach you what your mother didn't. I'm not your mom. Or your Google dad, is or your free. Parent. Yeah. 
A free service. Well, <laughs> relatively. Well, I a work as an editor service. in a sensitivity reader, yeah. so I do that professionally. I don't want to do it with my recreational time either. I get paid $32 like an hour to I do my job, so kick me my check or leave me alone. Right. I work with, like, I work with health, global health disparities all the time. I, I'm traumatized on purpose. I did that to myself. I'm not going to come on here when I want to talk about anime and, like, get weird on Maine to, like, educate you about what what my experience is like or something you've never heard about. Yeah. Right. I also just feel like people like us are never really left with room to not constantly have to be advocating for either sides of our identity because so many people put us in the middle but don't actually listen to us. So, like, a lot of my TikToks get political because people bring their problems to me when mostly I want to make videos about my dogs and about baking, you know? People throw a lot of labor onto Afro-Indigenous people because they expect us to constantly be their liaisons while not acknowledging our existence, which is bullshit. Yeah, and Jay, I would like to say that um, your lavender syrup, I have a bottle in my fridge, but also, um, yeah, just the amount of labor that people from both kind of identities here that we encompass ask for and then, like, disregard us because we're women-identifying people or we're Native, so how can they, how can we talk about this? Oh, we're pretendians or whatever. Um, it gets exhausting to the point where, like, I don't really want to be involved. Like, it's an abusive space to be in um mm -hmm. and like yes i want it to be easier if if i pop out a mini me i want it to be easier for them or just for the younger generation but at the same time like if i give my all to this right now i'll have nothing left because it's uh, trying to change an elder's mind about where you belong um it's tough trying to change your cousin's mind about where you belong is tough if they have this preconceived notion that you are other from them. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I definitely try to do on purpose is to, because like I, I know that color and futurism very much play into how people interact with women in our communities. And uh, as somebody who definitely looks like a black person and a native person ran across the room and ran into each other, I have a lot of ambiguity behind me that I try to use in order to like put, point out some inconsistencies because a lot of native folks, because I have pretty classic features that they don't recognize as black features, but are like make comments about me being a full blood. And I'll actually be like, actually I'm black dog. And you don't get to treat other people like me poorly just because they look differently than me. And that really leaves people shook because they're not expecting Everybody would rather be accepted than draw a little bit of fire, but it's like not worth it because what if I end up having kids who are darker than me and have nappier hair than me? Should they not be as proud of themselves? Should they not be allowed to go do things in their culture and community and get disrespected? No. So sometimes it's just like if you have a privilege within your community and the ability to explain why something is messed up, you should. But at the same time, it's exhausting. I'm only 27 years old. Like how much can I really do? Right. Um, my thing is kind of similar. Um, the thing is, when I stand next to my Native cousins, whether they be, you know, three-fourths or whatever, or their blood quantum, God forget, 
God, fuck that system. But, mm. you know, if I stand next to them, you can tell that we belong together. You know, you slap a coat of paint on me and it's just like, oh, yeah, that's your family. But mm-hmm. that coat of paint, this, this melanization of my family line has made it hard for people to swallow. Um, I remember be, I was a teenager. I was sitting in on a meeting um, with some elders and some, you know, tribal organizers. And my cousin had has been Okwachata princess a few times. Um, and a couple things that really bothered me about, not necessarily her, but what that process looked like was I saw white natives who um, would tan themselves to for the for you know all the things they needed to do with that position. Meanwhile, I had some people encourage me to run, and other people say, "Well, Kelly, you're kind of too dark," um, and like that soured a lot of my experience when I was a kid and I like I just don't want that for the younger generation but at the same time I don't want to have to put up with those remarks anymore I went off on one of my tribal teeth recently because of some crazy anti-blackness to chat that people were doing um, and that's not to say that, you know, the Muskogee or the Seminole or the Rockamore or the Amity people could be any better, but it's just so harmful and it's so hard. And we, I think as a black native, especially as a black native identifying woman, I want it to be so much easier for people who are younger than me. But the amount of work I've got to put in is, it really doesn't feel worth it to me 75% of the time. Um, and, and there's also no reward or protection and something yeah. that I've definitely struggled with growing older is the hypersexualization because you get it from being black yeah. and from being native. And no matter who I date, it's an interracial relationship because you don't really yeah. find people who are mixed like us who ain't related to you or right. are there are a lot like- around you. Because if there are a lot of other black natives around you, they're your cousins. Right, like, I, I found a couple cousins online. She's like, oh, my grandfather's from here. And I'm like, oh, no, my grandfather's from there, too. We're probably kin. <laughs> and then I saw a Lumby person, and I saw that last name. I'm like, where are your people from? From the same place my people are from. I do not identify as Lumby, but I was like, okay. Uh, a great uncle somewhere went off and did whatever. And it's amazing, like, in such a condensed space, how we we can find each other, you know? And for me, a lot of my reconnection has actually turned more towards that, is towards working with and focusing on black freedmen in maroon communities and Gullah Geechee Mm -hmm. people and Afro-Indigenous communities because, like, I do a lot of work and I put a lot of heart into stuff and I'm not going to get dogged or let my people get dogged by anybody who wants to remain anti-blackness. And I was raised in a pan-Africanist household, like a radicalist pan-African household. So I was always taught to put black people first. And I keep a little bit of that in my heart because those black women are the first people to ride for me, no matter how light-skinned I am. So why the hell would I allow that disrespect to continue in front of me, in any community? No thank you. And I think think one important thing is, like, black women are always the first to ride, but also they... I find that they're the first that if criticism is given, they internalize that better and mm-hmm. make that transformation better than some other people, some other group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've met black women, obviously, 
because uh, I am black. And that's a moot point. I've met black women, obviously, who have said some like anti-native stuff, and I'll be like, mm, sis, that's not that's not it. This is kind of where that's coming from, and I think you should change that. They're always the first to be like, you know what, you're right. I'm going to, to attempt to do better. Right. It's always yeah. black women who are willing to hear me out and talk to me about stuff, especially because a lot of times, like, it's not a confrontational thing when it's between you and another black woman. And that, I think, is very much missed with our intercommunal communications is that non-black Native people think, well, you should be able to hear me out because we're people of color like you. But they don't want to have the actualization that anti-blackness means that when anybody who is non-black approaches a black person, our guard gets put up. And even as somebody who's racially ambiguous, people who can't necessarily peg me as black, but who are black, sometimes throw that up on me. And I understand it because you have no idea if I'm about to come say something super anti-black to you or ruin your day for no reason just because of whatever, because you don't know me like that. And it's not fair for people to have to live under that constant defensiveness, even within their own communities. And so I kind of gave up trying to make non-black natives understand me because like, if you don't want to be for me, then I'm not going to feed you my energy. I got other stuff to do. Yes, 100%. No follow-up, drop the mic. Or I guess hand the, hand the mic over to James. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> that that was that was all great conversation. Thank you. Um, so I guess we'll go back to the news because we still haven't finished that yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so Dev Holland is just, no, no thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's all that. Um, the Red House Autonomous Zone was the thing for, like, less than a week, and it wasn't because the police decided to, like, fuck them up, it was because they won. Um, they, like, this was an eviction defense, folks. Um, they, like, set up a whole lot, they, like, chased the fucking police out, like, Set up whole ass blockades to be like, no, you're not gonna get in here until, like, you know, they, like, get some sort of, like, thing going to, like, not have to get, like, evicted or whatever, you know? And, um, and then the mayor's like, I apologize to the family, I'm gonna broker a deal with them. And, like, that was it. Like, they fucking, they won. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's. Yeah, love to see it. <laughs> yeah, I love I, to see it, but I kept yeah, I, only being able to find really biased information on it, and people kept comparing this family to the Bundys. And I was like, uh, no. no. <laughs> A black native family resisting eviction is not the same as white people just deciding that, like, national land slash native land was theirs because they needed more room for their cows. That is not the same at all. Right. The most striking thing about this whole thing is just like predatory housing practices to me, and like nobody understands predatory housing practices more than black people and native people. So they did right. what they needed to do to keep their home. Um, that, from what I was reading, that house had been in their family for a long time, and then uh, I mean, due to circumstances that I don't really understand, but also kind of understand. Um, they had to take out a mortgage, which who knows what that mortgage said, especially at the time they took it out. Um, and then the gut, and then daddy government is like, uh, no, the house is mine now. No, they were, I'm glad they didn't stand for that shit because the thing is no one has been robbed or 
were, I mean, stolen from, same thing, um, more than black and native people. And so that they defended themselves in a way that I thought was appropriate. And allow me to just say, for those who might listen to this and say, well, they owned another house two miles down the road. Portland once had laws where they said they could lynch black people mm-hmm. if they lived within the city limit of Portland. So every black person who lives in Portland should own two houses, but they don't because mm-hmm. white landlords and slumlords own all the buildings and make the rent impossible. So I don't care whether or not them black folks own multiple houses because chances are, right. like all black and native people, those houses are going to go to housing their families and not ripping off a bunch of hipsters. So you can go ahead and take that moral nonsense that you skew for white fragility and throw it out the window because the second I see a comment about something like that I'm gonna go off because I understand why black people are not allowed to maintain wealth for their families without it being demonized but white people are allowed to be literal slumlords and that's considered okay right well stated so um anyways this podcast will stay hating fucking landlords and uh join your local tennis union um exactly <laughs> all right so yeah all that's going on um uh, nancy pelosi's house got fucking vandalized which is great <laughs> Tight. love it i'm love confused as to why more positive systems aren't vandalized like exactly <laughs> i don't know why why that's just now starting to be a thing uh, and I think it should be a it'd sport be, once it'd a year. It'd just be so terrible if more oh, fucking politician houses just got vandalized. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I would have, I would have been running through his house like a Tomb Raider, 100%. <laughs> Do you know the quality of the scarves and socks those white rich people must have? Do you just oh understand God. the mm-hmm. sheer amount of regular house and kitchen machinery, like? I really, really you know, could use a food processor, you, you know? And you they got one like somewhere that they didn't use. I think they have paid. It's true. Can I steal their high-thread count sheets, at least? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would take there all of their toiletries, their linens, all their expensive towels. <laughs> I'd be walking out there like a hotel. That's because I got a oh, practical yeah. sense, <laughs> yeah. you know? I don't need the TV. You give me that Argyle sweater. Yeah. <laughs> And anything I don't use, I will be giving to my homies. Me and my homies are going to oh, yeah. do something real pretty in your expensive Brooks Brothers uh, sweaters tonight. <laughs> I'm going to take your mattresses at your house, and I'm going to deliver them to domestic abuse shelters so those ladies Thank have you. a nice place to sleep. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, I'm going to pawn your silverware off and, like, donate it to, like, a, a teen shelter. Like, we're going to, all that money that you denied other people in the name of politics we're just gonna give it back yeah you give right. me a crew of 10 people i'm gonna take the copper out your walls too i don't care oh, people <laughs> just don't deserve rights we're just gonna level this place for all usable material mm-hmm. that's real distribution mm-hmm. yeah there you this go this marble countertop would look great at my grandma's house <laughs> you know, Grandma does. She deserves new fixtures. Take the shit out. Take the kitchen sink too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna put that nice sink in my granddad's trailer. I don't care. Dude, having a fucking fridge with all the fixtures on it. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. It just would be so fun to see one of those big fridges and like, like somebody's little 
trailer somewhere. <laughs> be like, where'd you get that? Mind like your business. Fridge that's like you can like tweet from. <laughs> Somebody, somebody's little HUD house on Eagle Butte with a big old refrigerator like that or something. Oh is my exactly god! Exactly where I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll be like, yeah, oh, we got the Lakota that. Thrifty Mart, but also look at this big fridge. It's bigger than the cooler <laughs> Lakota Thrifty Mart. Also a great a great place to hide a body, but you didn't hear that from me. Theoretically speaking. You know how many pickles you can keep in one of those big fridges? Hypothetically. <laughs> in Minecraft. <laughs> Alright, so um yeah. I like how we all have our hit lists for if we get to raid rich people's houses. Like we all have dreams. <laughs> simple dreams. Yeah. <laughs> I would be rude in some people's houses. Like, I'm not gonna lie. I'm ready to. You know, I'm ready with the Molotov at all times. But like, I'm, I'm robbing people blind. I'm gonna put on my black Air Force One and do what I need to do. Hey, yo, me and my husband drive through the country here, in and we look at the houses all the time. And if you got a Trump flag and a Confederate flag, I'm stealing from you. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna clean your stuff up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're not gonna know who's me either. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'll burn my my fingerprints off before they catch me. <laughs> she didn't hear that. To keep it one hundred, they, yeah, they won't catch me. Because <laughs> uh, I'm straight up just stealing. Quick, quick, nudge, nudge. Um. <laughs> we should all right. raid houses and flee the country in our dreams. Yeah, yeah obviously yes. <laughs> All right, so this is what young poor kids dream about having simple things like nice refrigerators and towels. Honestly, I'm gonna laugh. The I views of the people on this podcast do not reflect the views of the people on this podcast. So yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I simply just dream of having a fucking Cuisinart food process. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> oh my god! I want one of those rollout <laughs> pasta makers. I'm telling you. Oh. Oh my god, oh. yeah, like the real fancy ones that, like, oh, you don't yeah. even have, like, the hand crank on it? Oh, man. Y'all, yeah. I roll out pasta by hand with a rolling pin, the way my great-great-great-grandma did it. You know? My elbows hurt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now you can get a Cuisinart attachment, too. So Ooh, yeah. Stick that thing on there. But yep. In a perfect world. I just... In a perfect world, in yes. In a perfect world. Yeah. In a perfect world. I've seen some wild things in wealthy white people's houses, and they don't deserve it, so. I made friends with a, a rich person recently, and I went to their house, I'm like, why are none of your toilets white? What the fuck? Why do you need all your your toilets to be color-coded? Oh, <laughs> well, I have literally never I, in my I hate, life. I I've seen those gross old pink toilets from the 70s because all of my houses that we lived in growing up were old, but that's about as good as it got. Uh, and when the, what, the, all, of the, all of the bathrooms had an automatic light, so when you walked in and out, they turned on and off. And then the that's toilet horrifying. was like black and glittery, and I was like, what the oh, fuck no. is going on no, here? Automatic lights would make me scream because if it's in the middle of the night and I am forced to get up, to use the facilities, the last thing I'm doing is turning on any fucking light. I, am... I would rip those hoes out in a minute. No, I need those. I'm scared of the dark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there if are two, I had holes there in are my two light. people in this world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
If I had lights in my hallways that were automatic, then I would miss my nightly routine of getting to pole vault over my dog. <laughs> you know, I saw once that, like, so. someone had, like, floor warmers in their bathroom. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah, I, I have heard of this. floor warmers. I have some, like, floor warmers. Those are nice. Uh, I dated a rich dude whose family had floor warmers in all of their house, and his parents had a shower with four heads that was half the size, which was the size of the bedroom I lived in when I was in high school. Um, so what yes, I did turn all four of them on and run it till the hot water was gone every time I was there. <laughs> oh yeah, it was like a bathhouse. Yeah. I did. I was like, all you right. don't live on yeah. top of a hill. <laughs> like just <laughs> oh man so if any serious settlers want to like pitch into my housing fund um <laughs> but anyways help us build um... bathroom rooms yeah <laughs> help us build if you want to help contribute to my like bougie ass bathroom yeah, I want a jacuzzi tub for the revolution <laughs> <laughs> By home and he wants nice fixtures. <laughs> Open your wallet. I, I just want a bigger <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> like, this is the this is the left. Uh, this is the future the left wants. <laughs> Honestly, bigger kitchen so we can cook with our friends. <laughs> yep. Yep. Communists want bigger kitchens for larger dinner parties. That's all. Yeah. Yes. Literally. <laughs> I cannot. I'm a, I'm a youth worker, and I cannot tell you of how many queer youth I know that their life goals are like. I just want to make soup for my friends. I want <laughs> soup in the middle, in the middle, for me and my soup homies. For my family. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um, all of that aside, um, two more items on the news list. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, the Zapatista uprising started 27 years ago, earlier this month in January. Um, so that's pretty fucking baller. Yeah. Um, people defending their land. Hell yeah. I'm I'm all well, for also, it. Um, I. Let's, let's also just give it up to the fact that the Zapatistas are a predominantly women-led group, which most people should know, but they don't. And I love it. And right. I love talking about the fact yeah. that they maintain horizontal policies and that they institute a little bit of Marxism and anarchism, but mostly they maintain indigenous forms of regulation. And uh, I am about that shit. Oh, nice. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> like, imagine and... being an indigenous person just protecting your own way of life uh, on your land. Oh, wait. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and uh, I also hear they have great coffee, which I have yet to check out because A, I'm not a coffee drinker, and B, that shit is expensive. <laughs> they they put their hard work and labor into it, you gonna pay that money. That's yeah, it's true, honestly, true, yeah. Even fair trade coffee is so cheap compared to those folks' labor. Like, I worked at a lot of coffee shops growing up, so I know way, way too much about coffee facts. And the thing is, is that, you know those giant pump carafes that you get uh, pump coffee out at coffee shops? Normally, to make an entire one of those, it costs the equivalent of about 50 cents for, like, an entire thing of those. But if it's fair trade, it's only 80 cents. So, these folks are making products that we turn over 
and making barely any money on the dime when honestly we charge two dollars for a cup of coffee out of a single carafe when you could drop six of them on the ground and not make any difference in your sales for the day yeah i my eyes are really open to exactly how like depraved you know the coffee system is um when i was in cameroon and farmers um would would grow cassava and coffee rather than other native plants that were more fruitful and worth more money because of like coffee ventures in the country and they were poor and i'm like but i'll i'll easily fork over four dollars for some coffee so like the disconnect between labor and like consumption it drives me mad absolutely mm-hmm. so anytime i see like a small group of black or brown people indigenous people selling something i'm gonna pay full price um, yeah. and not ask questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair well, it helps them maintain their autonomy, and they work through a bunch of co-ops to provide education for their kids. So it's not like yeah. you're paying a company. You're literally handing money directly over to community organizers to ask their people what they need, which is about as good as capitalism can get if you have to be forced yeah. into it. Yeah, right. it's a trash system that has left us uh, like this, gestures to world. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, if we must pay paper money for an actual good or service, I'd rather pay it directly to the good. Yeah. Bitches love autonomous zones. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Um, it's just my favorite. Speaking of autonomous zones, uh, if you want to help out with Cabin, you lose a hunt. <laughs> um, but yeah, so if, if you want to help out with Cabin, you lose a hunt, uh, if you're in the area... Um, you can, uh, hit up the email info at creekpatrol.org. Um, you can just send an email there to ask how you can, like, help contribute with, like, volunteer shit or whatever. Um, if you're not in the area but would still like to help, um, we have a website, campmenuza.org. And, uh, for folks who got arrested and are still, uh, you know, like, they're dragging their feet in the fucking trial. So, um... If you want to help out with legal funds and shit, uh, you can go to mllegalfund.org and uh, contribute there. And uh, yeah, so there's all that. Um, it's a new That's year. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um... It's good places to go. I'm always looking for things like that to add to resource lists that I keep on my Patreon and stuff. So I'll add that to some lists because uh, oh, people yeah. oftentimes <laughs> ask yeah. me what I should do to contribute towards Indigenous liberation, and the truth is, is like. I'm detached, so my answer is always, like, give a Native person your money. Yeah, open your wallet. That's a good way, too. But, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you can also check out, um, should I plug our other podcast on here? You can also check out the podcast, um, (laughs) because we usually drop links to Indigenous businesses, um, and, like, can they lose on? Uh, and you can also probably check out my Twitter. My Twitter usually, I cycle through that, like, every two weeks I'll drop a link. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's all that. Um, it's a new year, the settler calendar. Um, that's very exciting. Um, 2021, gay, I guess. It's been two weeks, and it's just, it's, 
It's not a fun time. It's looking like 2020 Ultimate Edition. Um, <laughs> yeah, speedrun. 2020 did like a speedball and like just barreled over into 2021. Yeah. So, um, yeah, contribute to your local mutual aid efforts and um, open your wallets. <laughs> yeah. Open it. Dump it and out. Also, if you see something, say something. Now is not the time for you to be a latter-day ally and to just call yourself something because it makes you feel good. Honestly, people are in danger, and I'm, like, kind of lucky because I live rurally, and the village that's very close to me is super-duper liberal, but even still, that won't necessarily keep me safe, but I know that people who are in more highly concentrated areas are still actually in danger, and so y'all need to grow a little bit of a spine and keep an eye out for your neighbors because if shit gets crazy, that is your communal responsibility. Don't let nobody start shit on your turf that you won't help settle. If you have a lot of money, um, buy your fucking people ammo or body armor or, you know, like other survival supplies because chances are they don't have the money for that shit, but you do. So help out that Arm way. Arm a black um, or native woman today. Yes, arm, yes. <laughs> arm a, a native person. Arm them. Arm Before, POC. Them um, <laughs> yes. yes. I've had so many people send me knives. I don't know what it is about my face where someone's like, you know what, she needs a sharp object. Um, I get a lot in there. <laughs> yeah, my dad come, gave me two big hunting you knives can before just he trade moved. knives. <laughs> yeah. My dad gave me his weird. big hunting knives before he moved, and then this guy on Twitter sent me a really nice knife with, like, a sheath and a belt hang thing on it, too. Like, it's a hunting knife, too. It ain't no small pocket knife. Um, nice. Oh, yeah. It is. It's tight. In first uh, year, yeah. my, one of my friends dropped out halfway through the year. She's like, just like, hey, Todd, you want a knife about this big? And I was like, yeah, sure, I guess. But I didn't realize <laughs> I meant, like, <laughs> a real, like, an actual whole-ass knife. I mean, like, yeah, I thought... like I listen. I keep my granddaddy's machete in the trunk of my car. Um, I have throwing knives that I'm very good with near um, in my living room, just in case someone want to try something at the front door. Uh, I have another knife under the mattress in my bed. Like I, I'm, <laughs> I'm like armed to the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm ready to scrap at all times. Okay. Oh yeah. I, you like, always had to grow up being ready time, to scrap the whole time. <laughs> every time I help do transport for camp, I always have a fucking baseball bat with me. It's just because I'm like, don't trust these white people out here. Well, that but, makes sense. <laughs> Be reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so with all of our news items finally out of the way, I think we, we can get it. into it. <laughs> we did it! <laughs> We can finally get into our main topic of discussion. Um, I'm so glad I'm not the one editing this. Congratulations, James. I'm going to send you some cookies because this is going to be a mess. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's all right. I'm sure it'll be fine. (laughs) Um, We're finally going to be talking about Black Indigenous folks. Um, (laughs) So that'll be cool. Um, But yeah, so first question here. uh, What do you do for a living? (laughs) Yeah, I... uh... Wow, what do I do for a living? Um, <laughs> uh, woo doggy. I do a lot of things. Um, recently, I have completely committed myself to starting freelance work. The thing is, y'all, before the pandemic really kicked off, I was working as a museum curator. 
And then before that, I was working as a college writing tutor. And then I went from that to now being in a sensitivity reader and an editor. I work in publishing mostly now. Online uh, work has been very good to me through the pandemic. And I'm very glad that I've been lucky enough to find some freelance work to keep up with. Uh, but besides that, I sell jewelry. Right now, I'm taking a little bit of a hiatus from that because I just have creative burnout, which happens when you've been stuck inside for a year. And yeah. I also produce and write and do interviews for my own podcast called Rambler, um, which is mostly about black and indigenous experiences with the land. A lot of this season has focused it, focused on mutual aid and food sovereignty because those are things I think are really important and being pointed out as huge insecurities to our communities right now. So those are kind of the things that I focus on. Okay. Um, I am an environmental epidemiologist. I'm currently completing my PhD in Colorado, and I'm also a science communicator. Um, I write articles and I also read for other people to make sure that their science is accurate and consumable. Um, one thing that I attempt to combat a lot is like accessibility and knowledge. Um, it, as someone who is in academia but not of academia, um, one thing that I try to prevent in my own work and in those who are around me is to make sure that um, everything they write is readable because there's nothing worse than people in this ivory tower kind of talking to each other about very, uh, very pertinent issues to everyone else and then like not explaining it to everyone else in a way that's meaningful. Um, so yeah, I mainly focus on how environment, the environment affects um, global health disparities, especially in black and indigenous populations. Excellent. <laughs> All right, so uh, next question here, how do you connect the land? <laughs> Um, oh, wow. So, uh, for me, I grew up in the woods. Um, I am the granddaughter of a farmer um, and a longshoreman, um, and I have always been comfortable in the outdoors. Um, my family is, uh, you know, low country native, and we go foraging for medicinal herbs that, you know, um, was passed down from, you know, our great-grandmother and our great-great-grandmother. Uh, I'm an avid gardener. Um, I I feel more comfortable outside sometimes than I do inside. So to me, I mean, the land, it's a symbiotic relationship, 100%. I give to it. Um, I've given part of my life to protect it, um, and, I, and I grow from it. And that, that's kind of it. I, uh, interestingly enough, grew up mostly in the inner city, but my family focused a lot on urban farming and guerrilla gardening in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of food disparity and a lot of racial segregation in that city, and so that was something that I grew up with as being a value. Uh, part of the time I lived in high school, I lived on an urban farm, and uh, I was raised with like a very heavy Taoist influence as well as a very heavy Akan influence. My mom um, lived in Ghana for three months and lived with a woman who was studying to become an Akan priestess. And when she moved back, that uh, really influenced the way that we grew up and lived. And um, while that didn't necessarily 
mean that my parents were perfect people or not abusive people. That's something you should be aware of with community organizers is that even people who on script look good are very capable of doing things that need to be paid attention to and should be called out. But what it did do was it instilled a huge sense of community and land and food sovereignty being a necessity. And then when I was 18, I took an externship to the Cheyenne River Lakota Reservation and I worked at the Cheyenne River Youth Project and I worked with a lot of kids and I worked on the two acre food garden there when I was 18. And one of my jobs was working under an elder there who took care of the garden. He was really just like a super fun guy. I made him tea in the morning and then I got to make kids meals twice a day there. So like one of the things that definitely radicalized my ideas on relationships with the land was I took a look at the hood and at the res and they was the same. And it became very clear to me that the liberation of our people is very much based upon how we move on the land, what we grow on the land and the restrictions that have been placed on our interactions with the land. So like for me, I don't know, that is, I don't see a difference between myself and a connection to the land. So it's hard for me to say where I connect to it, if that makes sense. But uh, that, that is what it is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. And uh, so what are some of the like real impacts of being black indigenous? Um, I, one of the, I guess this is like, I'll give one positive. The positive is that my heritage is rich. Um, I come from two very strong communities and I take a lot of pride in that. Um, and I think black people are beautiful. Um, native people are beautiful and I am just so happy to be of them. Um, the shitty part about it is the having to straddle those two worlds um, is all the anti-blackness you get when you go to the res, when you're with your native family at the gatherings and the powwows and having to filter through that um, and then in the black community it's just like oh you just want to be mixed so you're you feel like you're not of us you feel different you feel special um i do get some of that sometimes even though i'm pretty solidly brown so um i can avoid it unless i open my mouth um and that part's really difficult to deal with especially now that i'm a little bit more vocal um but getting to learn about you know ceremony and language and food which is like so important to both cultures um just enriches me as a person it really kind of forms who i am outside uh whereas you know that negative aspect of the othering aspect of being from the those two communities can be tough and kind of make me withdrawn sometimes but i wouldn't trade that for anything yeah, I feel very similarly. Um, it's been nice because reconnecting has given me like a greater sense of myself and a sense of strength in myself, especially as somebody who doesn't necessarily fit into womanly gender roles. It's been really mm -hmm. nice to right. look at the traditions of our people and see that there is a role and a place for someone like me and it doesn't require change. Um, and I think that's very different from dominant culture. So that's something I'm so grateful for as like a weird queer adult that I don't think 
um, other cultures really have. One of the other things I'm so grateful for is because I grew up um, in a very Pan-Africanist community is that the um, was really impressed upon me to reconnect to my ancestry. So a lot of the people who influenced me early on in life are still doing that as I'm doing this reconnection journey. So that's something I'm super grateful for is like how many people, there's like a lot of people with dissenting and crappy things to say always. But what's interesting is I keep finding people who defy that so much that it makes the crappy voices just like so much quieter now. And so that is something that like, I think that I really need to like admit, sorry, I'm trying super hard not to sneeze y'all. <laughs> um, I was about five seconds away from making the loudest noise in your ears. Sorry. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I am glad for the inherent matriarchal nature of black and native culture. And I think that that strengthens me in a lot of ways. I agree with that and identify with that a lot as well. Yeah. And of course my struggle is, is that as a reconnecting person who is a black native is that I oftentimes, wow, because of my phenotype, even before I understood what it was to be native, I was dealing with anti-native violence and sexual assault and things like that. Um, so what kind of sucks is that as somebody who is reconnecting, who very much experienced indigenous discrimination while not even knowing about their connection, is that like white passing people just get readily accepted for no reason. Like, they just show up and everybody's yeah. like, oh, we love it that you have blue eyes. And I'm like, but they ain't doing shit for the community. Like, they're not trying nothing. They don't keep tradition. They ain't, like, trying to learn anything. They come in with entitlement and white fragility. And I feel like Black Natives have to work twice as hard. I've hmm? always had so many questions about that because I, like, I really... I feel the same way, but I'm always hesitant to voice it because I'm like, well, why is it more acceptable that your ancestors mixed with colonizers, but if they mixed with my people, if they mixed with slaves or freedmen or whatever, why is that so taboo to you? Like, let's break that down as to why that worries you and why you don't accept that. That's I think one of the most harmful things that I think we have to deal with is just like, why does this blonde hair, blue eyed girl or boy or them non-binary person get, get the love and warmth upon returning home that I don't get? Like I've got to pull out the family tree with the, the identification and, and the dodgeball entries and, all this other stuff and then even then people still might give me a side eye um whereas you know a person who has more classically european features walks in they're like oh yes finally you know our 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 person has come home and that's always really bothered me Um, yeah it's it's hurtful because you don't feel really protected by your community and it's something that like I don't know whether or not like a lot of black women talk about this situation in dating but the hypersexualization while also mm-hmm. not being willing to acknowledge that we can be sensitive people like emotional people definitely plays out with how 
Native men approach me because they, like, want somebody who has brown, classically Native features, but they also want to erase my blackness, and I will not allow that to happen. And then because of my blackness, I'm treated very differently than white-passing Native women, and I am not afforded the yeah. same type of fragility. And uh, No, not even a little not bit. Fair. Not even a little bit. It's not. Yeah. And when I think about things like that, I, I start to understand, like, why my grandfather left. And why my great aunt, you know, treated talking about, you know, our great great grandfather or whatever with some kid gloves. Like I, I start to understand that more as I immerse myself more in in the culture. Because you know, it's not like I never knew. We always knew. You know, my my great my great uncle, you know, keeps keeps all of our family records together. And you know, my my grandfather has pictures of his grandmother or my my mom's father. It doesn't matter which 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 is which but you know we keep all these records and i i i'm like why would you leave this on it on the table like we acknowledge it but why aren't you interacting and then the more i kind of think myself into it i'm like oh this is what you did not want to deal with this is like the harm that you were experiencing when you were children and i understand more why they you know only took one step in rather than going all the way in, you know? And, uh, yeah, well, I look at my great-grandfather who was forcibly disenrolled under a law in the Cherokee Nation that specifically said that uh, children of Black and Native mixed marriages would not be recognized. Mm -hmm. And then a year Mm -hmm. later, they ratified a different one to allow white mixed children in. And the Cherokee Nation's anti-Blackness is heavily based in uh, Confederate and colonial influences. So there were, of course, because we're a freedman tribe, people who owned slavery. But when we talk about owned slaves and participated in chattel slavery is what I meant to say. Um, but when we talk about these things, we don't really look at how that uh, continued to affect dynamics post-removal. And the thing is, is that even though the Confederacy was defeated, the natives who ended up becoming the original tribal council of the Cherokee people were Confederate Cherokees who were mostly mixed with white. Right. And that cannot be missed as a dynamic within the five civilized. And I don't know if that's the same for the other tribes, but I assume that it was very, very similar. Right. Um, I mean, we're, we're coming from, I guess, the same region. So I, I, I imagine that a lot of our ancestral experiences are similar or very analogous to one another. Um, because you know my my mom's family is Chata and and Muskogee and my dad's family is like Seminole and and Wakama and you know we we deal with very similar things it's just like well, why was this person's designation changed um, on the rolls why were they unenrolled why were they re-enrolled and then you know I think tribes really need to reckon with how they handled these issues in the past and what I'm seeing and what I've seen most recently in the Choctaw Nation is that they'd rather ignore it or deny it than confront how in order to survive they accepted whiteness in a way that they did not Mm -hmm. extend to blackness and through that they've alienated a lot of members of the tribe. And it's something that I don't think is discussed often enough, but 
when you're mixed with white, you have a proximity to a privilege. And so it's a complicated conversation to have with native people, of course, because they feel like they're being attacked. But like, especially with uh, people from the five civilized nations, we have to realize that the racialized dynamics were created because of laws. Like we have tribal mm -hmm. council members who are the descendants of slave owners. And right. even though my nation, I'm not enrolled, and I don't think I ever will choose to be because I'm just against being on lists any longer. Um, I don't believe in them. But the thing is, is even though Cherokee freedmen now have all the same legal rights, some of them do, because it's harder for us to get enrolled now because of the forced disconnection. But also, just because now we're allowed to vote doesn't mean that we're getting access to our language or to traditions or to the things that actually make our culture a culture because of that anti-blackness. And so I don't know what it's like for people who are freedmen descended of the other tribes because I know a lot of those folks outside of uh, the Seminole people don't even have voting rights. So yeah, I can, um, of course, not compare my yeah. tribe's experience to that. I recognize how it's different. But it also very much stems from the same, the very same beast, I think. Right. No, it's a lot of it. A lot of what you're experiencing is similar uh, in varying degrees. Like the Seminole people are an amalgamation of disenfranchised tribes um, and runaway slaves, Kichigawa people. So that history is being acknowledged more and more but we still have the issue of who's going to be enrolled and who's not um whose features are accepted and who's not uh can you can you what what is our quote-unquote blood quantum requirement uh what is are we going to let free people treatment in are we not it's it's all again it's all stemming from the same place of you know laws are put in place chattel slavery existed these groups accepted that dynamic and and now we're trying to figure out a way past that um so in that regard it's all very similar um because those tribes experience very similar things just by being in the same region um, mm -hmm. at the same time yeah it's a wild dynamic and a very complicated history and i think that it's super uncomfortable for people to talk about because it's hard um, yeah. And it's not like an easy subject material. Lateral violence is not easy to discuss because everybody's feelings end up being hurt because no one can accept the truth of reflection. Right. And uh, we've, we've got to get over that because um, our tribal ties don't matter based upon enrollment. Um, somebody who is Cherokee is Cherokee whether or not they carry a card. And there's going to come right. a point in time where people are going to want our strength and they're going to need it. And they don't get to only call upon us when they're in desperate need. If you, right. you got to ride for Friedman all the way or else we're just going to all work together by our lonesome. I think the biggest part uh, of that kind of conversation slash movement is accepting complicity. Um, because no one wants to do that it feels icky and i understand that like i can sympathize with that um because obviously no one ever really wants to admit that they're wrong but i think the thing that bothers me the most is that admitting complicity um 
and the reasons that may not necessarily be nefarious for accepting complicity um, cost the tribe nothing. And I think that's what hurts me the most. Like, I think in the long run, it's enriching. You would think it would be this enriching experience or journey to be on. But for various reasons, they don't want to take that path. And I think a lot of it has to do with pride and um, what what that would mean for the heritage. But to me, I listen, I exist. There's no denying that we exist, you know? And so I don't understand... Yep what they lose by accepting us. understand that they lose more by losing us if you think about it my great-grandfather who was forcibly disenrolled because he didn't pass a paper bag test and that's the thing that happened is they would take us into the enrollment office and people who did not understand our culture or people who did Mm -hmm. would look at you and go your skin's too dark for you to be native right and they would decide whether or not you belonged to your culture based upon our ideas of race, which are not equivocal in our cultures. And that has really damaged us on top of the fact that like you and I earlier talked about how the colonial influence has been um, forced upon our people for so long that it has intrinsically changed us. But we need to look at that as a dynamic overall. Like just in Indian country, we can look at transphobia and misogyny Mm -hmm. and anti-blackness and apply those things because those are not inherently from our people, but we are still yeah. definitely suffering from them. Yeah, we're influenced by by what has happened without acknowledging it. And something very similar has happened, you know, in the Chata Nation, I was talking to a cousin, and her great-great-great-grandmother, I think, that when they were giving out land allotments in Indian country, chose to admit to less native ancestry because that meant more land um and Mm -hmm. that privilege if you can even call it that i actually i take that back that's not a privilege that designation that they chose um was based off of skin color if you were lighter Mm -hmm. you got more but that means you had to admit less um so you know it's all of this is so complicated and so messed up um, that it, I can understand that in a sense it's overwhelming. Does that answer your question, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> that that answers multiple questions. So. <laughs> like, uh, it's, I think it's apparent that Jay and I can literally talk about this all day. I've got plenty of stories. <laughs> like, I... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Um... <laughs> All right, so I think we can definitively skip the next question that I had here. Um, <laughs> well, what was it? It was, um, what can anti-blackness look like in an indigenous oh. community? And I think... <laughs> oh, we answered that. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah that's, that's, that. that's, that's... Yeah, we, we got that down, Pat. <laughs> um, so, 
how can colorism affect these conversations? Um, I think I, we touched on this a little bit earlier in that, like, I'm a pretty solidly brown, like, I'm medium brown. I'm neither light skin nor dark skin. Uh, and the way I'm treated can differ from someone who is more light skin, like Jay is. Um, but it's still garbage either way. Um, neither is a treat, you know. Um, being fetishized for being light skin is trash and disgusting because it like eliminates humanity. Just like uh, being called uh, all sorts of animal names for being dark skin is gross and diminishes humanity. Um, so colorism is just a trash concept anyway. Uh, we should throw the whole thing out. Yeah, um, and I definitely especially when it comes to the way that people speak to women it is uh, highly based in colorism and uh one of the other things that i would like to definitely note is that i sort of wish my ass had never brought up colorism on twitter years ago because now all i've done seen is white passing natives twisted to make themselves somehow the victims again oh, oh I don't god you know, there's there's a definitive cycle on native twitter which is like someone like some we attack some fucking vegan or some shit yeah. then the white natives calvin and start feeling attacked and then there's like some fucking predator in the community and then repeats yeah, <laughs> yeah truly there's yeah. no variant it's truly like uh powwow singers growth to teenager anti-blackness anti-blackness veganism 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 cool picture of uh inuit whale whaling or seal hunting earrings anti-blackness white it's crime that's it that's all we get yeah <laughs> and then real colorism discussions that we don't have that need to be have definitely end up falling by the wayside because we still end up giving preference to the fragile and like i'm a brown person people don't mistake me as a white person but i'm a caramel colored brown person which means that that doesn't mean that i don't get racism but it definitely is different than the way dark-skinned women are treated mm -hmm. and i noticed that based upon the way that other black women and other black native women who have darker skin than me are reacted to on twitter i can while out and say some shit that other women cannot and so i do it um, but we need to actualize that the reason that people reflect upon it differently is because in many circumstances, I have a more acceptable type of beauty, and I don't see that as being Eurocentric because I don't really have Eurocentric features. I have light skin, but that still means people treat me a lot better than they treat somebody even slightly darker than me saying the same things. And so I think that, uh, we need to definitely reflect very earnestly upon our own privileges with colorism. Um, especially because one of the things I'm seeing on social media is people are learning all this bullshit in terms and jargon to point fingers at other people rather than addressing their own internalized bullshit that might be hurting people that they love. And I didn't learn about mm -hmm. these concepts so that I could go around and tell everybody else that they were doing shit wrong. I learned about it so I could look in the mirror and go, Ayo, are you being shitty to, like, the black women who raised you unintentionally just because they look different than you? Like, have you decided to treat people who have different looking bodies than you differently because you've internalized fat phobia? Has that affected you? Does that affect how you feel about yourself? 
and uh, Twitter definitely is not a forum of self-reflection. Not so, even a little bit. No. That's a constant I'll struggle. Are ephemeral on Twitter until you dig up old tweets, and then you have the same conversation with no nuance again six months later. Yeah. Yep. Everybody has learned nothing. Um, and that is infuriating. Um, like Jay said, I make sure that I don't talk about colorism and, and racism and disparities because I want to tell everybody else what they're doing wrong. I want to make sure that I live a life and treat others with the respect that I deserve and that they deserve as just like being a human being regardless of gender or sexuality or color or anything because that's just like being decent i don't need a title i don't need to be called anything in doing that but it's just being decent and learning about those concepts concepts influences how you treat yourself and how you treat others so. yeah it's all right. the philosophy for me of minding my business if i internalize Ooh, these concepts to mind my own business the way that i'm going to treat other people is simply going to become a part of my reactions and interactions but it's all about really looking at yourself and being like, yo, what type of toxic stuff did I learn from people around me who were saying toxic things about other black women's bodies and skin tones and features yeah. and about other native women's bodies and skin tones and features? And like, Active how did that thinking. make me feel as a kid when I was being scrutinized? You know, when people were saying Active things like, don't thinking. go out into the sun, you'll be too dark or... Your sister Jade yeah. is the pretty one because she has the light skin and the green eyes. So even as somebody who, like me, is not the most affected by colorism within the dynamics of my family, you can see it play out with the treatment of how I, as the darkest skinned sibling of all three of my sisters, am treated differently than my sisters. And I ain't even, like, the most affected by colorism. So it's that real that it works in such interpersonal degrees and levels that unless you really like reflect on how it's affected you in multiple circumstances you need to not be going out and talking to other people about it because you're about to probably put your foot in your mouth yeah clean up your own house before you come come over to others and talk about the decor that's all i have to say like mm -hmm. you know i i think about um how my cousins and i my brothers and i are all very different shades and like are you know Again, I said this, I think before we started recording, uh, genetics isn't like mixing paint. Um, mm -hmm. And people treat it like it is, and we just assume that the closer you are to a lighter shade of paint, the more insert whatever you are, or the darker you are, insert whatever you are. Um, and we really need to move away from that because it's so damaging. And in order to do that, you need to do active thinking. You need to constantly be thinking about why did what I say affect the person I said it to in this way? Do I need to do I need to do some critical thinking and introspection to address why I may have said that? Why was that my first reaction? Why was that, you know, an innate reaction I had to something? And is this healthy? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't. This is a difficult skill to learn, I think, but it's not a difficult skill to use once you have it. Um, and I think. I think the Native community can be doing that, I, and then obviously the Black community can be doing that because of how Black people sometimes, oftentimes treat Native people and vice versa. Yeah, it's um, 
the thing is, is I think the other thing I struggle with is that people mix up colorism and monoracialism, which are oftentimes along very similar levels and things that happen, but they're, but they are a different experience. So light-skinned people, like white passing people, they experience monoracialism where they like experience the feeling of being split between two diametrically opposed people. And that is culturally difficult. All mixed people experience that. But not all right. mixed people are mixed with white. So sometimes that shit isn't about you. Like, I don't even know what I'm mixed with. I know that I am an ambiguously brown person who has been harassed about it in public since I was, well, forever. So, you know, some people, and I also know that there are women with darker skin than me who have been harassed about it for forever. So sometimes yeah. when you enter these conversations with people, you also need to look at, you're throwing your labor on and i had to call somebody out on my tl about this the other day a white girl who was like a white passing native girl who was upset with me because i said you need to critically think about whether or not you're reconnecting or race shifting and they had to dump oh, their whole her. life story on me and i had to be like hey yo do black natives do this to you no i don't think so it's only y'all who demand that labor and that is very much the dynamic of colorism is the whiter passing a person is, the more they expect the brown and black members of their community to cater to them. And I'm just not really about that life because people don't listen to me because I'm pro-black. And that is just, so why would I on earth, why on this great green earth would I want to cater to a white passing person who won't even listen to me about my experience? Right, like I, I'm unapologetic and yet here you are saying sorry that you are what you are. Like I don't have time for that. I don't. I mm -hmm. would rather watch paint dry than I, deal with like white native fragility. I can't, can't do it. And it's I also, it. it's, I think it's really triggering for people like you and me because we've also been faced by violence by people who look like them. And I think that's right. something that needs to be actualized is that when people are afraid of white passing people it comes from a very real and visceral place the first time somebody called a cop on me or dropped the hard er on me i was eight years old and it was a grown mm -hmm. white woman who did it because she knew my mama was black and she didn't like black people and she didn't want me playing with her daughter and so that's something that white passing people don't have to go through and i really need them to just admit that that's something they right. don't have to and go through right and it's not to say that we don't understand that there is a struggle there because obviously there is okay mm -hmm. again straddling two cultures not looking like your kin that is something i understand but when black natives say hey i'm going through this the first reaction 95 percent of the time is to shut it down and start talking about themselves now that's yes. that's it the five percent who's just like you know what i hear you i'm listening and i under and i can empathize with what you're going through i i am here with you i stand with you that does happen but those experiences are so few and far in between that it's like numbing. It's it's hard because you never know what you're going to get. So you're always prepared for the worst. And there's also something I've noticed is like a fake wokeness thing that definitely happens. And I know that this is part of uh, Misogyny Noir, which is something that you and I definitely experience in our dating and uh, professional lives a lot. I write a book. And honestly, like... It was, like, until I got married, of course it was hard to deal with because it was something that I constantly 
uh, was faced with because the fetishization of light-skinned mixed black women means lots of people are attracted to me, but they're not into the fact that I am very comfortable with being black and I'm going to talk about it and I'm not going to yeah, let you, you shut me up about it. you have to be an empty void with an ambiguous skin color um, because God forbid you have any sort of personality or identity that they don't aren't actually attracted to. They're just like, attracted to the idea they want something ornamental and yeah. I am very much a full contact sport I'm sorry yeah um, and that's it, it gets gross it gets gross really quickly um, I mean to be quite fair there's one of the reasons why I choose to stay single has to do with misogynoir and anti-blackness in the community mm-hmm. that I tend to hang out in um, because I just don't feel like having to deal with those things at this part in my life um so i avoid it because the shit's traumatizing yeah and honestly i probably had i not been really good friends with my husband for five years i never would have gotten married i like wouldn't have wanted to keep that in my house because i've long-term dated and lived with people and no matter how hard you try they still bring that to your house and if there's any right. place I don't want to deal with it, it's my own damn house. Yes, and it's just like sometimes I, I, it's not our jobs to be teachers all the time. I'm not going to coddle you. Like if you've said something to offend me, I'm going to let you know it <laughs> in a way that is, I think, appropriate, which is not to mm-hmm. coo at you. It's to be mad. It's to be hurt. And it's to want you to get out of my face. And I think, and- you know, a lot of most of the communities uh we don't want to deal with what that looks like from us um mm-hmm. because again the the only thing that uh black women uh are good for uh and i say this facetiously obviously is cooking your food raising your children and teaching you what you what your mama didn't teach you um in a nice mm-hmm. way and we're not here for that like we're no four dimensional beings and on, and on the flip side of that, being Native means we have this constant burden to make sure that we, like, carry on an entire cultural line and exactly. have all of these responsibilities. We just get all these responsibilities thrust on us that never end up balancing out in terms of our support. It would Both. be fine if we had the responsibilities and also got held up by our communities the way that we're supposed to, but it has become right. imbalanced. Because both communities are matriarchal. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a matriarchal society and then what we actually see when we're in that space don't don't always line up with the supply and demand, the emotional labor, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that that's infuriating. And uh, being greeted with both misogynoir war and uh, what I sometimes call. Uh, and y'all can be mad at me for whatever. Dances with wolves syndrome. Ooh. When people are just hyper-spiritual and, like, traditional, but in a twisted, misogynistic way. In a way that that's gets thrown extreme. on us, too. Yeah. And I also call that crazy horse syndrome. Because so many Native men, like, wake up thinking that they're going to be the savior of their people when really they ain't shit. And they shouldn't be being shitty to women in their communities just because their mamas told them yeah. they were special, you know? Yeah. 
Like, we come from matriarchal societies. You are not as important as you think you are. And I hate to be that hardcore about it, but Cherokee people were not actually delicate people when it came to enforcing our matriarchal rules. And neither were a lot of other nations. And if you really want to be tradish, then you need to really be tradish and ride for the women and queer and non-binary people. People don't want to be. Yeah. People don't want to be tradish unless it is it affects them positively unless it's good for them to be tradish um if it excludes people that they don't want to see that then they're all for it and that's just human nature and i understand that but that doesn't mean it's just garbage yeah and it's something that is not fun to deal with and i think it needs to be talked about very frankly and very openly is that the labor within communities of color is heavily imbalanced. And then when you are a part of two of them, it is doubly thrust upon you, which is definitely not good for our mental health. Right. Um, I think one thing I want to kind of leave with everyone listening is that humbling yourself, it doesn't cost you anything. Um, Apologizing does not cost you anything. Admitting you're wrong does not actually cost you anything. These things are learning, learning moments. They're teaching moments towards yourself. It it helps with emotional burden from those around you if you just do the work yourself. I understand asking a question. I understand wanting to understand. But when you do these things, if you do the introspection, you'll find that living and understanding is so much easier again humbling yourself being sorry does not cost you pride um and i think those are things that both our communities struggle with um Mm -hmm. because of such strong cultural identities does that make sense and because of such cultural trauma and i will not uh not acknowledge the fact that because both of both you and I identify as women that we don't see the dynamic for what it's like for men, but I've noticed that colorism for men very much affects how people see them as more violent. And so I understand having your wall and your guard up in that way your whole life. And I think that it's just a difficult place for me to say, but you've got to let it down with your own people and you got to learn how to treat your women because we're always expected to hold uh, these violent men down. And honestly, that's why we have such high domestic abuse rates in both of our communities is because Mm -hmm. we're expected to just take things without saying anything. But the fact of the matter is it's not healthy for our men either. It's not healthy for our future sons. And if we really want to talk about being traditional, we need to talk about restoring this idea of strength that does not include stepping down upon other people because that's not how our societies were based and also an idea of strength that removes gender because being strong Mm -hmm. is strong you don't have to slap masculinity or femininity on strength for it to be what it is it does not have to present in a way that is sociotypical it doesn't um, it doesn't have to be crazy horse syndrome. It you do not have to it save doesn't. all of your people ever. It doesn't. And it's it really pretty great that we had these heroes in the past. Right. Yeah, it's great that we had these heroes in the past, but you can be your own type of self. And I think that 
that is what is it's hard because when you come from cultures that have had the ability to meet your rites of passage to find your place in your society and so I definitely empathize with our young men who no longer have the ceremony to be able to hold the space that they need to feel as whole as they deserve to but also that has been taken from women as well and I think that we need to in a traditional sense really recognize how that has hurt us wow <laughs> just gonna sit with that for a minute <laughs> do y'all have commercial breaks <laughs> this said um go buy some native jewelry um if you see a native person on twitter um with wares go buy it that's the commercial um Mm-hmm. June bugs soaps. June bugs so- bespoke soap. Go buy some native made soap. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's the commercial break, everybody. So just <laughs> absorb that and then open your wallet. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's how you heal by giving others money. <laughs> <laughs> but not to make light of everything that we just said, this is all very hard stuff. And, you know, Jane and I are both in our 20s. Um, and this is just our reality, and that's all we can speak on. So. Right. Yeah, no, thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> um, so I know, like, you kind of already, like, hit some points on this, on this for the next question, but, um, what can we as indigenous folks do to be, like, better allies? Um, I think look inward. Look at your own behavior and see what you can do to change it. You need to do some active thinking um, in order to combat combat anti-blackness. You can say all the right things, but that does not mean that you mean it. And, like, in order to mean what you say, your behavior has to change. The way you speak about these things has to change. I don't want the change for political reasons. I want it because it's the right thing to do. Um, because if we don't change how we handle anti-blackness community, we're going to lose a lot more than we gain. Um, so, uh, when a black native person is speaking, don't talk over them. It does not mean that they don't value your experience. They're just sharing what their experience is. When you see a black native person struggling with something, you know, show empathy show support I, I i understand that these things sound over can sound overwhelming but honestly it's the smallest stuff that touches my heart when i'm like on twitter is when like a native person's like you know what you're making a lot of sense right now or i'll be like you know what girl i really appreciate that you said that those are the types of things that really touch me um, and I don't just do it on the Twitterverse, do it in real life. You, you see, you know, someone struggling to reconnect, you know, and, and they happen to be a black person, you know, share, share yourself because in doing so you're enriching our culture. I think that's all I have for that. Yeah. Um, I would, I don't have anything better to say than that. Um, But I would say that uh, 
it's hard when you come from damaged people to not meet things with ferocity. And I can't blame anybody for having it that way. But I ask mm-hmm. you to consider to use your ferocity in a way that is loving. And yeah, and that's basically all I can say is like confront yourself with like deep acceptance and love and then give that to other people. Right. Because I just want everybody to understand that accepting black natives and black freedmen does not undermine anything about your heritage. It doesn't do right. anything I'm not, to it. No, nah, we don't want to take your identities. We just want the fullness of ours to be recognized as equal. And also, don't expect us to give up any parts of herself because oh, no, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I was raised... Right, I'm very proud to be raised in a Pan-Africanist household. I never would have worked towards reclaiming had I not been taught those principles. Mm -hmm. So I owe a lot of honor to those ideas. And the people who I think I have connected with also benefit from those philosophies because I bring them with me everywhere. So recognize indigenous philosophies outside of just North American ones because there are so many of us in this world to unite to not even on this continent. Like, I found a lot of strength in my Palestinian comrades. And that's something, that's a relationship I'm going to value forever, is making good Palestinian friends and organizing with them. And so, for me, embrace the idea of indigeny outside of the stereotype and reach out to indigenous people who maybe even aren't on the same continent as you. Um, and come to understand indigeny as a global phenomenon. Three-fourths of this world suffered violent, traumatic colonization. There are more of us than there are of the settler. And if you reach out, you will find them. I could not have said that better myself. This is a global effort. Um, I understand that it's a lot easier to just focus on your own community, but this is a global struggle um, in terms of just cultural preservation so um, I hope everybody like chews on that for a little bit um, and realizes that your struggle is analogous to struggles everywhere um, and something from you can learn something from anyone um, in that regard when people struggle to keep their culture and what they did and um, the histories behind colonization globally um there it's hard to not be the center of your own universe and i understand that um but it's it's all it's all related so yeah build a bigger table don't define yourself by how many people you can exclude by it define yourself by how many people you can bring to it right Excellent. Thank you for that. Um, and then, what are some like good resources to like help folks with this topic? Do you think? Um. So I know everybody's first instinct is to like, oh, I know one black native person. Let me go harass them. Do not do that. Uh, read a book. And one book that I will. Um, there's a couple of books that. I know of, but one that I would really like everyone to read if they just want to understand blackness as a Native person 
um, is The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabella Wilkerson. Um, that book really, I think you'll understand a lot more about the black experience and how you'll be surprised that it's not dissimilar from the Native experience um, during that time. Um, and there are several books which um, I should have wrote, wrote them down, but I'll get into you later, James, LOL. Uh, about <laughs> black, black native identity um, and, you know, the colonial process that both introduced these two communities together and erased them. Um, there's a few books that you can find by reputable authors. So, um, and a lot of times, depending on which tribe you're from and where they're located, they might have something in the tribal archives to kind of shed some light on your own history. My final recommendation is if you have the ability to, uh, put down your social media and go touch some grass. I was reading a statistic Ooh, yeah. lately that said that since the beginning of the coronavirus, the use of social media has gone up 300%. And while I'm not anti-technology, I recognize now that in order to have good mental health, you need to have boundaries in regards to it. And especially at a time where it's hard because we have no social interaction, please turn off the jargon and the rhetoric for a second and just like let yourself be a normal person. I'm not even going to recommend yeah. any books. I'm just going to recommend that you spend like three hours tomorrow just being a normal person barefoot in some grass get some sun i know y'all are vitamin d deficient like please yeah me and like my best friend have been like going to and like weekly weekly hikes now and it's been it's been real nice <laughs> open a, also open a window <laughs> I yes. everybody's windows are closed open it up let that sun in Unless you're living in South Dakota right now, which is, like, it's very fucking windy. Like, it's, like, 60 mm -hmm. miles per hour, so, like, maybe don't. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't do that, but, like, when that dies down, just crack, crack the window a little bit. Get some fresh air, get some circulation. And yep. Pet a dog. Yeah, Something. pet a dog. Yes. Water a plant, maybe. Um, Drink some tea. Make some brownies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just turn off your electron. Do a puzzle. Do a puzzle. Do your dishes. <laughs> yeah, wear a mask. Yeah, do your dishes. Do your laundry. I know you've been wearing the, same, yeah. the same couple of sweatpants in rotation, but they're funky now. Throw them in the wash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, um, any other questions for us, James? Uh, just one more. Um, oh. If you're in, in my shoes, if you're in my uncomfortable metal seat, um... What would you ask the questions for yourself? Like, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> what what questions would you ask yourself? I don't know. You ask really good questions. <laughs> like, they're, like, meaningful questions. They're not just, like, fluffy questions. Right. Um, I guess we've touched on this, but I guess if I were to ask a direct question about this is just like how do you emotionally deal with anti-blackness mm -hmm. maybe 
Yeah, I think that would be a good question to ask, especially because oftentimes people of color are asked to reduce our feelings to statistics and like hard facts and stuff. So very rarely is our like actual emotional state uh, comes into play. So that might even just be a good question for anybody that you interview. Yeah, it's like is, a mental health yeah. question. <laughs> Well, also, emotional intelligence and logic are things that people don't value, and I think that it's doing us a disservice, and it's good to check in with yourself, but it's also good to be asked to check in with yourself, because sometimes when you're caught off guard, you, like, you start thinking about things in a way that maybe you didn't have a chance to if you had planned it. Mm-hmm. And I do like to surprise a person. I love it. <laughs> love me some surprises um but yeah i think that's it um unless you guys have anything to plug <laughs> um i guess the only thing i'll plug is our other podcast the all sacred podcast where we play board games um and just be native together while doing it uh, it's, I'll plug... okay. it's been a pretty good time like we've we trashed on Johnny Depp a lot, which I enjoyed. Um, <laughs> Ooh, I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah, uh, you can also check me out on Twitter if you'd like uh, at I'm underscore Kelling K E L L I N G underscore it. Um, it's a pun. Mostly... Yes, it, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you'll mostly see me um, yelling into the void, seeing if it'll yell back uh, <laughs> about anime and books and like my work as an epidemiologist. And then sometimes you'll see me go off on somebody, and that could, if you love a good dragging, you know, you might enjoy that. <laughs> but mostly I keep it light for the kids or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter too at Awkward Rambler. It's all one word. I run a podcast called Rambler where I'm also going to be double posting this episode. Um, so obviously those of y'all who listen to my podcast should, uh, listen to this podcast that interviewed me this time. Um, cause it would be cool to listen to more than one indigenous podcast. So that's called Rambler. Y'all can find it on Spotify, and I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the underscore rambler. And all those links and things are also on my Twitter, which is, again, Awkward Rambler. Much easier to find it than trying to listen to me repeat it several times. Um, and Jerry, right. I just want to say, it was a pleasure to actually talk to you um, on a medium that is not Twitter. Um, yeah. We've had I... plenty of um, internet interactions, but you're just as cool in person or i appreciate that because one of the things i worry about with social media is not being genuine and i uh won't let this i won't let this hellscape suck my soul out yet damn it (laughs) i feel like you two should do an episode on like your podcast Yeah, possibly. (laughs) I'd be open to it. I'll become a little bit more scripted. Uh, James is used to me just going off on the podcast, and I feel like that's James this episode. (laughs) 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 Um, But I I will come a little bit more polite with, like, real pants on. Yeah. 
<laughs> you invite me. No worries. You should listen to my podcast and hear how unscripted that shit is. So it, yeah, it really is unscripted. It's just yeah. right. Like I listened to the episode with you and Tyrone, and like it was just fantastic. Oh, that yeah. sounds. I gotta go listen to that like right now. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like humanize black and brown people as being normal people, and sometimes like. That means that you don't need to have a serious fucking conversation about everything. For the love of God, I like camping and hiking and dogs a lot, you know? So why can't I talk about those things instead of being sad all the time? So silly. Right. I'm a human being. Four dimensional. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a huge fucking nerd. I love Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Just, like, I lose stuff in my hair and, like, go outside without shoes on. Like, I, I, I embody the universe. <laughs> my husband calls me his feral housewife because I'm like I'm like oh a giant hot mess. I leave it out, and sometimes she she comes to eat it. Sometimes she doesn't. Who knows? He's like she'll make you dinner, but you gotta fucking catch her first. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm gonna have to use that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on this yeah. very special episode. This is great. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you for having I, us. I hope I didn't embarrass you. Yeah, I appreciate you. it a I lot. Did, don't tell anybody. This, this is this podcast is not a tight ship at all. Like this is like <laughs> we just go with it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best way to be. We we run on Indian time here. We like you know it's. <laughs> That's that shit I do. Literally, like, like we'll plan the start and then we don't start till like an hour and a half later. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we do that on all the podcasts. <laughs> we don't we don't run on the white man's time here. Yeah. Time is an illusion meant to oppress me. And I think nothing makes that more clear than living in the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, thank you, Rolls, for joining us. Um. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to us, consider sharing this podcast. Be sure to also rate this episode and leave feedback if you'd like. Our wonderful cover art was done by Eli, and you can reach him on Twitter at PaintedTurlCo. There, you can buy him a coffee or commission him for his art services. And you can follow us on Twitter. Reach me at AgualaWarriorAW. Uh, Ty's Twitter is SpaceKit, spelled S-P-4-C-K-1-D. And if you want to have updates on the podcast, you can follow us at of underscore resurgence. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just look up Voices of the Resurgence. Um, if you want to support the podcast, we'll have a link to the Patreon in the show notes. There you can get access to our Discord for $1 a month. And for $5 a month, you, you can gain access to notes for each episode. Um, if you have any questions, suggestions, or want to provide direct feedback, you can email us at voicesofresurgence at gmail.com. Uh, on Pay to Watch Day, we hope you can join us again.